John chapter 13, we're going to be picking up at verse 31. It says, so when he had gone out, and the one who has gone out is Judas, we, we had seen that in the previous verse, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As I started out in the introduction last week, we see that chapter 13, and actually we've been looking at this for the last couple of weeks, is a chapter of contrast, and we'll be looking at the last contrast tonight. We saw in verse 1 that there are those who are of the Lord's own, and he loved them to the end. Then there are those who are of the deceiver, and we see that in Judas, those who deny the Lord and even go as far as betraying the Lord. And that is the earmark, those who betray the Lord versus those who serve the Lord. Then there are those who are of the Lord and the ones who are clean in the sight of God. We saw that in verse 10. But then there are those of the devil who are unclean in the sight of God. We see that in verse 11. There's the Old Testament precedences in that well, they, they show us all that is going on and that there are those of the, the, the mindset of the devil who are deceived. And we see this in Old Testament scripture when the devil himself said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And we see this was Judas. He was trying to exalt himself through his betrayal of the Lord. And then we know what though the attributes of those who are saved. We see in Philippians 2.8, it says, "...in being found in appearance as a man..." He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death upon the cross. And it all boils down to the consequences of our actions, the consequences of our beliefs. Now we have this last contrast, at least last for the chapter, and you have to back up one verse in verse 30. Having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. And so you have Judas, he's going out to do his dirty deed into the darkness. Darkness, darkness in the Bible so many times is a picture of a godless existence. It's the absence of God in the, well, he's going out into the absence of God as he has refused the only one who is able to save his soul, seeking to betray him. Now we know that this ends up in the cross, but we see the heart of the man. And so again, we've got Judas going out. Now, hell is spoken of as outer darkness. Hell is eternal existence apart from God. Now looking at that contrast, you see heaven. Heaven is going to be illuminated, but not with the stars or not with the sun, but the glory of God is going to illuminate heaven. And now you take that and come back here again in verse 30. We've got Judas going out into darkness, but now we've got Christ coming into the glory. If you see in verse 31, so when he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, so they're keeping this contrast, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Two occurrences that have changed and continue to change the world. The present glory of the Lord, when I say present, I mean present back in that day. Where is Christ about to go to that he is going to illuminate the truth of the world? He's about to go to the cross. The future glory of the Lord, well, that'll be him seated at the right hand of the Father. Because Jesus, in, in verse 31 and 32, is speaking in two tenses. 
He's speaking in the, he is glorified, the present tense, but he's also speaking of the future tense. And so there's this term that is thrown around here, glory. What does it mean to be glorified? What does it mean to be glorified? Well, it's the essential nature, embodiment, and a character of being, this dictionary definition, acknowledged for its worth producing worship. It's the realization of who Jesus Christ truly is. Because again, that's what John's been working towards. He's been working towards the revelation of Jesus Christ as God. The revelation of Jesus Christ as fully man. The revelation of Jesus Christ as Messiah, who's been talked about in the scriptures. And now when we come to this understanding of the totality of who this man is, and he's going to the cross for all of us, this is... He's being glorified through the actions and the obedience to the plan to such a point that we worship him. We come before the Lord and we have this spirit of adoration for all that he is and all that he's been able to accomplish. What has produced this in Jesus Christ? Well, again, first his deity and he is God. His crucifixion, that he's paid the price for the sins of mankind. We have the resurrection that lent proof to what occurred upon that cross. Anybody can die, but somebody who is able to overcome death, that's another story. And then again, his ascension as he is seated at the right hand of the Father. So when he, again, Judas went out into outer darkness, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Again, this is the glory that is of the cross. Now Judas... Judas has started the process with the fulfillment of Scripture, and it's essential. This isn't just one man going according to his own will, although he is, but this was according to God's plan. Now, it wasn't God saying, there's going to be a betrayer, and I need a guy to betray him. We'll just take this Judas and plug him in and have him do this. Remember, we serve a God who inhabits eternity. He knew the heart of Judas. He knew what Judas was going to do. More than likely, what Judas is doing here, it's not so much that he just wants to kill off Christ. Definitely doesn't want the 30 pieces of silver. He's got bigger plans than that. He's a man who is, well, very self-centered, and he's wanting to build his own, if you will, kingdom. Probably always knowing he's going to be subservient to Christ, but he is the treasurer. He's the treasurer of the 12 apostles. And so we're told elsewhere in the scriptures that he was pilfering the purse. He was stealing the money. And if he's able to do that with what the 12 are able to bring in, now again, they have an improper knowledge of who Jesus, or really an improper knowledge of the kingdom of Christ. We see this all the way through to Acts chapter 1. Will you now at this time restore your kingdom? And again, they're looking for this kingdom here on earth in which they're going to have exalted positions I would imagine Judas is thinking, okay, it's one thing to be the treasurer of these few guys. How about if I'm the treasurer of the whole kingdom? And so really what he's doing is he's trying to make these things happen according to the flesh. Now, again, God inhabits eternity. God knew what he was going to do. And so really that's why we call what was written previously, if you look, verse 18 is spoken of, um, his fulfillment of the scripture of betrayal, God knew it was going to happen, so when he wrote about it previously, he was prophesying of what God knew was going to happen. And so we have this man, Judas, that has started the process, and so that we would know the totality of everything that has happened, 
especially as we put the Gospels together, that this has truly been God's plan from the beginning. And as it is the fulfillment of God's plan, and we know the ramifications of the fulfillment of God's plan, we glorify the Lord. And as God is glorified, he's worshipped. Just pointing at the, the presentation, those songs that we sing. Those songs that we sing are not here for your entertainment. They're not here for a buffer just in between you getting here and me coming up. They're here that we can express the adoration of our heart for a holy God that loved us to such a degree that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He came right to the very brink. The children, I did their devotion for the teachers before services about Noah and the ark. Keep wanting to say Moses and the ark for some reason. Noah and the ark. And... Uh, God had told him to build the ark, and he built the ark. But think of it, those hundreds of years as he's building the ark and all the work that that must have been. He has to be wondering. You know, he's, he's, he's walking by faith, but it's not perfect faith because none of us have it. And so going through everything, get all the animals two by two, then go into the ark and, and all of these things. And then it says, it started to rain. It started to rain. Now, Noah is also spoken of as a preacher of righteousness. So he told other people, and they had to be wondering, and, and more than likely it's believed by scholars and scientists, Christian science, not Christian science, but Christian scientists, real ones, um, it's probably the first time that it's ever rained because there was this mist that went up in order to water the plants of the earth. So now all of a sudden this was spoken of on the day that it rained. See, I have a, a um, raindrop sensor. Just take my hat off. And I can usually tell before most people when it's starting to rain, when you get those first few raindrops, and it's like, uh-oh, here it comes. But, uh-oh, here it comes. I would imagine when that rain started coming, just think of Noah. Praise God. Praise God that I found grace in the sight of God. That all of those years that I spent building this ark, even before my kids were born, that it was all for a time such as this. And again, we kind of get a picture of, of the magnitude of the realization of the grace of God as that new song is being sung in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. It's just the realization of the salvation of mankind. And so we're seeing this come to fulfillment. We get another little bit of a, a clue here in who Jesus is. And this is, again, the Apostle John writing to the Jewish mind, although we are able to enter into that. In verse 31, it says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now this is a declaration of who Jesus Christ is to the Jewish mind, because obviously they're scholars of the Old Testament. They know and even the common man knew elements of the Old Testament. And it's this term, Son of Man. This term, Son of Man, it refers to Messiah. Really, we see it coming, and, and there's really that attachment in Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 through 14. It says, Daniel speaking, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Now, when it says like, it means, okay, he's the Son of Man, but not the Son of Man, as we are all Son of Men. Now, Jesus was fully human, but there's something special about this particular man. This is a messianic recognized in the Jewish mind as a messianic prophecy here, speaking of the coming Messiah. And so one like the Son of Man. So there's that attachment 
And there's attachment to Messiah in the cross and end-time theology. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming when the clouds of heaven, he came to the ancients of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Well, we know that all of that was validated by the cross. He prevailed upon the cross. And so, taking that Old Testament term, the Son of Man, John is using it so that they would know that this man who is about to be crucified is the one who is spoken of so long ago. But there's a little bit more than that, because again, that would bring them back to Daniel, and you're about to see this guy die. But there's also future prophecies that have yet to come about, so that when he came back to life, there'd be an understanding of fitting all these things together. See, we have it all neatly packaged in here. They didn't. They had to figure it out. And they had the Holy Spirit after Jesus left to gain understanding, but nonetheless, there's a flow that goes through this that if you follow it, it flows right into Christ and who Christ is. And even as we celebrated communion last Sunday, it was for that present moment, but also with the remembrance that he is coming back. Just as truly as Noah built that ark and that first raindrop fell, that we are to go out and to build Christ into our lives, not talking about the flesh, but through belief, but then go out and build the church of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, because one day that first raindrop of tribulation is going to fall. And just as Noah realized the truthfulness of it all at that, we're not going to see the tribulation, but it's as if, just think if, now, I really believe when the rapture comes, it, you're going to leave here, and all, it's like a blink of an eye. You close your eye here, you open it in just a moment, you're in heaven. So it's not really time to think here, but if you had that time to think, you'd be realizing the magnitude of the real, reality of what is about to happen. And you realize the magnitude of the truth that we've been able to study and able to embrace all of the days of our Christian life. It's why it's essential that we study this word, that we know this word, and are prepared in this word for every good work. And so Messiah, he's going to be dying on the cross, but again, it's the fulfillment of prophecy based upon the planning of God that was first delivered to mankind in the Old Testament. God said that he would do this. God said how he would do this. God said when he would do this. And now all of a sudden we're seeing that God is doing this in Jesus Christ. So this fulfillment of prophecy, we know that God is glorified through these things. We understand the magnitude of what God is able to do. How is it that God through Messiah is glorified or worthy of worship upon the cross? Well, it's because he's overcome the sins of mankind. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18, he kind of wraps it up. Paul kind of wraps it all up in Adam's and It says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift uh, came to all men, resulting of the justification of life. So he's talking about the sinful nature of mankind. Now, it's important that we understand this in this work of ministry that we've been called because the church has gotten way off from this. The day that you die, I'm sorry, well, you did die, you died to yourself, but the day that you were saved, the day that you repented, what did you repent of? Oh, my sins. 
Well, Jesus forgave you of those sins that you've committed in the past, the ones you committed today, but also the future. In essence, what you were repenting of was your sinful nature. And it's very unfortunate. We have chosen to exalt certain sins over other sins. But in actuality, Jesus died for me, not because I did this or I did that, but because of the sinful nature that I behold. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll look at different people. I remember the discussion. The discussion always goes on. You know, somebody who commits suicide, do they go to heaven or do they go to hell? And I've heard a Calvary Chapel pastor that said that if you commit suicide, you're going to hell. I don't believe that. I believe that Jesus Christ, when he died, he died for my sinful nature. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Now I have been changed from a sinner into a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Suicide issue, that's probably one of the hardest things to deal with. That's one of the, you know, that, that, that's just like off the charts. But then when we in the church start adding these stigmatisms of things that take it out of the range of the grace of God, just think of the disservice that we do to people. Especially, you know, I think the, one of the biggest cruelties of suicide is when somebody takes their own life, you realize the magnitude of the hurt that was there, and, and there was no way to, you know, say goodbye, to say I love you. My, my father-in-law did not commit suicide, but my father-in-law died instantly of a heart attack, and that was one of the hardest things, Terry's, Terry's uh, father, one of the hardest things, not being able to, all of a sudden, boom, just gone. And, you know, anybody that experienced, anybody that died instantly, you, you know what that means. And so, yeah, that can be hard. But then to throw on top of that hurt that this man's in hell, this woman's in hell, I mean, how can we do that? Christ died for all of my sins. And, and he's going to die for my future sins. And, the, you know, and, and sins under the classification of sins is stupid things, unreasonable things, you know, things that are off the chart. And, and, you know, you can take it out of that arena and bring it into the arena of homosexuals. You know, all homosexuals are going to hell. That's not true. That's not true. And I'm not saying God is overlooking homosexuality. Homosexuality is a sin. Don't get me wrong on that. But you have to understand that they can get saved. That they can get saved. God has died for their sins. They can receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And, and so... When you became a born-again believer, did somebody give you a list of what you had to stop doing before you can enter into the club? But then we start doing that. We start telling, well, you know what, before you can become a Christian, you've got to stop doing, you've you got to leave the gay lifestyle. Well, I tell you, what I've seen in my Bible is you can get saved and Christ will clean up the mess because Christ still cleaning up this mess. And your mess, too. You guys are pretty messy as well. And so we've got to understand, again, the magnitude of the grace of God and see these great things. And when I say great, I mean great in magnitude that God is, is doing. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not going over to the gay agenda. I, I, homosexuality is a sin. There's no doubt about it, but it's not the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And while man is able to draw breath, there's always opportunity, no matter what he's involved in, to repent and get right with Christ. And for us to, you know, God's got his Ten Commandments, and then we start adding our Ten Commandments to that. Well, that was the problem. The Jews were adding their traditions onto the Word of God and making this a burden that was unbearable for all of mankind. And so, we've got God's plan of grace. We've got God's plan of mercy. God could have just forgiven all of mankind's sin, but he has chosen to not do that 
because he is a just God. There had to be justice served. Somebody had to pay the price. So why go through all of this, believing and non-believing, heaven and hell? Well, we're told in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, but now, and this is what is occurring through all of this, but now the righteousness of God, the absolute rightness of God, appear apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is what the Old Testament, and that's what John's point is back in his gospel, this is what the Old Testament was always pointing towards. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And it says, very key word there, all, everybody. And what God has declared forgivable, let not man declare not forgivable. Upon all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Apart from Christ, everybody's in that same boat and it's sinking. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When it says freely, that means without any cost. Grace is a free gift given by God. Verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Propitiation is a theological term that means the price paid to appease anger. Whom God has set forth as a propitiation through his blood, through faith, to demonstrate, so that all mankind would know, and we see this on the cross, his righteousness, because in his forbearance or tolerance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. God was waiting and he was doing a work throughout all of the time before Christ, up until that time of the cross. You can even see that demonstrated in your life before Christ. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that all whittles down to justice. But this is divine justice. Just man's justice says, you got to go pay the price. Divine justice says, I've paid the price for you. And so we see the love and we see the magnitude of everything that God has done for mankind. And this, we're right here, as we go back to John chapter 13, we're right on the cusp of it. And the things that are going on are all lending towards the realization and the truth of these things. Verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. At the moment of Messiah's death on the cross, Jesus was glorified. Jesus was worthy of worship based upon what he was doing and accomplishing upon the cross. Philippians 2, 10 through 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth. Speaks of him being glorified. And to those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Verse 33, little children, I will be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this we will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, obviously it speaks of his death and his ascension into heaven that mankind cannot follow, but there's even a little bit, we've got another contrast here that's important to see. I'm just going to kind of touch on that. 
we'll, we'll, we'll go and we'll move through, through on to a couple of verses and we'll get back to it as we close out the chapter in verses 36 through 38. But look at verse 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer, just a matter of, of a couple of hours here now. You will seek me, as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, and then he speaks of this new commandment. Where I'm going, you cannot come. There was one of them who tried to follow after, though. See, Jesus is going to be glorified. And when he goes to that cross, nobody else can go upon that cross with him. And so there, there's a little bit of a contrast here with Christ, as Christ is going to go out and he's going to his, set his face like flint towards that cross. But then there's going to be Peter lagging behind. And so the question is, should Peter have been following? Look what happened. Because remember what Peter said? And again, we'll, we'll see that. And I mean, Jesus even asked him in verse, well, look at verse 37. Jesus said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And so Jesus told him he couldn't. So Jesus went and Peter followed anyway. He followed at a distance. And I've heard people teach on that. Peter was at a distance. Now, if he was close to Christ, he would have prevailed. No, that's not true. He shouldn't have been there. Jesus just told him. He, he, he should have stayed where he was. Should he not have been at the cross? I don't know. But he shouldn't have been following him because what did it lead to? In hindsight, we know it led to the denial of the Lord Jesus Christ, his Lord. It led to his, because he was where he ought not to have been. John's going to get into more detail in that later on. But he told them specifically here. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. Peter cannot lay down his life for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to lay down his life for Peter. If Peter would have pushed him out of the way and went to the cross, kind of like what he said he would do, although he could never do, that would have been an unclean sacrifice, unacceptable by God. Peter would have been paying the price for his own sin, but it never really would have been fully paid, and Peter would have died upon that cross and spent eternity in darkness just as Judas did. It would have been the same thing. As Judas hung himself, Peter went to a cross. If he went instead of Christ, it would have been the same result. So where he's going, where Jesus is going, he cannot follow physically for the next few hours, but also eternity, eternity eternally, as he ascends up into heaven. And so Jesus is going to die and ascend to heaven and be physically there no more. There's going to be the second coming, but obviously he's talking about what is going on at that time. So how is man to know Jesus Christ? How is man to know Jesus Christ? Well, that's what Christ is talking about. Since I am going away, I'm giving you this new commandment. And the idea is a new commandment so people will see Christ. How is Christ seen in our church? How is Christ seen through our individual lives? Well, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also loved one another. Well, the great expression of God's love is Jesus Christ dying for mankind upon the cross. Our expression of love for one another is we take up our cross as we crucify our flesh for the benefit of one another. That people, you know, people come to our church. Don Stewart, I saw him at the Logos building this a few years ago. Um, I hadn't talked to him in quite a while. He'd come to teach here a few times. And uh, I, I, my wife and I, we just kind of ran into him. And he, he, we were talking and kind of walked together a little bit. 
And then he walked around the corner. He was going to do the radio show. And then he stopped and he turned around and he goes, you know what, you got a really loving church. He says, your church really loves you. And uh, he, he just sensed what, what you guys, I wasn't here. He, he just sensed the love in the body of Christ. And, and you know what, that, what, what he's seeing there in that is? He's seeing Jesus in us. And, and that's an awesome testimony. It's not my testimony, that's your testimony. And that's just a blessing to see people, a group of people, willing to get over themselves, to sacrifice maybe their wants and their desires so that other people, well, the people within the body of Christ would be built up, but especially people coming from the outside, either believer or unbeliever, will see the love. Are you watching the news? Tune into the inauguration. Are we really seeing the love anywhere else today? No, you're seeing a lot of hate out there. Turn on the ABC news, not the ABC, but the alphabet news channels, whichever one they are, whichever point of view they're representing, there ain't a whole lot of love out there either. But there had better be love in here. We're not here to debate. We're not here to, to destroy people's point of view. We're here to preach Jesus Christ and to express him through a love that he has first expressed upon us. The Apostle John in his epistle, he spoke of this lesson in his epistles and even had some hard words to say. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, he who says that he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides or lives in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him, but he who hates his brother is in darkness. You can kind of take this illustration back to Jesus and Judas. Judas going into outer darkness and Jesus going into the glory. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eye. 1 John 3.15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so if you're not expressing the love of Christ, what John is saying, you need to question your own salvation. Has your life truly been changed? If you can't express love for others for the purpose of expressing Christ, you need to check out and make sure that you are right with Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen how can he love God whom he has not seen? I can love my grandchildren. They're, they're really easy. Tomorrow we're going to Chick-fil-A with Henry and, and Max. I'm looking forward to it. But how about those people who can be such an irritant at times? It's then that, you, as Jay Vernon said, the rubber meets the road. It's then that you get a good view of where you are really at with the Lord. When that person who is contrary... Because again, we're required, as I just read here, we're required to love all people. But it's the ones whom you don't like will be the true, the, the true barometer of where you're at in love, sacrificial love. And when I say by don't like, there's just something about them that just doesn't mesh with who you are. And that's okay. It's not that you hate them, but just, you know, they're just, you wouldn't normally have fellowship with that person. You wouldn't invite them over to your house. But now, because of that, you're able to get over yourself and express love through the work of ministry into that person's life. That's when we know we're doing these things. That's when we know that this is truly Christ within me. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13 says, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these are love. Why? Because there's going to come a time when we're in heaven faith is no more. We're going to walk by sight. We're in the presence of God. Hope, 
Well, our future has been realized. Now we're in the presence of God. But love is going to continue on. We're always going to be in the love of God and expressing the love of God for all of eternity. Verse 36 through 38, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. So he gave him an expressed order. But you shall follow me afterwards. We know that Peter was crucified. Peter was crucified. Um, tradition says he was crucified upside down. He determined or he made the proclamation he was not worthy to be crucified as Jesus Christ was crucified. But he was going to give his life for his faith. He was able to do that because of the Holy Spirit and what Jesus Christ has done here. But he says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Because we see, he failed. But see, later on, when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then there's the opportunity to stand before the opposition, then he didn't deny Christ. He stood for Christ at that time, but he was ill-prepared at this time to stand for Christ. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Well, again, that's an impossibility. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most surely I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. So, you know, he's, he's looking at Peter's boasting. <laughs> Peter, you're not going to do that. Uh, I'm adding the laughing. He doesn't say he laughed at him. But I, I can imagine. You know, isn't that sweet? No, he, he, he couldn't do that. But it's another contrast that we have. I know I said that was the last one, but there is another one here. There was the guy who was always mentioned last in the list of the apostles, Judas Iscariot. And we have the guy who was always listed first. And we've come to another interesting concept. See, it ends with the Peter, the apostle, always listed first, who's going, on, who's going to be denying the Lord. And so you have to look at the first and the last. What's really the difference between the two? What was the difference between Peter, who denied the Lord, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord? Well, Judas betrayed the Lord, and you see the difference is in his heart. Judas took deliberate steps in the darkness. Peter was trying to tread into the glory, a place that he was ill-prepared to go at that time. Now, it was contrary to Christ what Peter was doing, but he had a heart for the Lord. There's no doubt about it. Peter had a love for the Lord. Jesus recognized that because what is he going to say at the end of the gospel? If you love me, feed my sheep. And now he's talking about a love and what Peter is able to give. We'll get into that probably about four years from now when we get there. But you see that Peter had a love for the Lord. Judas, he had a love for himself. And it's that which made all of the difference. And so there's going to be that time. There's going to be that time of denial. There's going to be that time of trouble. There's going to be that time of pain. Close with this thought. Why was Peter ill-prepared? Peter was ill-prepared. And we see the illustration. We're not going to turn there. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 through 46, when it came time for preparation, what was Jesus doing? When it came time for preparation, Jesus was praying. He was praying in that garden of Gethsemane. He was praying passionately, and so he was prepared because of prayer. Peter, he had all these great intentions, but when it came time to pray, he fell asleep. I've seen that time and time and time again in the church. can't tell you how many people tell me of all the great things that they're going to do for Christ, 
but they're ill-prepared. Not just prayer and so many others. You've got to be prepared in the Word in so many other places. The only, when preparation meets opportunity, it's then that you see the glory of God revealed through the work of ministry in the body of Christ. This Tonight, I pray, is preparation. Our devotions tomorrow, I pray, are preparation. All these things we are doing are, praying, are, are being prepared for the work that God has us when we have the opportunity to glorify Christ that we're truly able to. And then I'll close with a cross-reference. You can close your Bibles if you'd like. Cross-reference in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. We've been here before, but Jesus again, Luke's account of him speaking to Peter. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. No, he doesn't say Peter, Peter. He's going back to his flesh. He's speaking of him as the son of, of this man Jonah. Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. Notice that Jesus is very faithful in prayer, and that's where the victory comes about. I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And so again, Peter probably would be thinking, oh, good. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing if God would came, came to you and, and spoke to you of a backslide? But Lord, I've never backslidden. I have no plans to backslide. But God knows our heart. And praise God, he knows our heart because the magnitude of the grace of God is able to overcome those failures. And so Jesus is, is, is seeing Peter, this man, who, again, if you, if you look back, I forgot this point, but if you look, we're not going there, but if you look back in John chapter 13, what does Peter say? He says, I will. Do you remember what we looked at back in Isaiah chapter 14? What did Satan say? I will. I will. I will. Never tell God what you will do. Tell him what you, he, you want his will to be in your life. It's then that you know that you're well with him. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So his faith isn't going to fail, but there's going to go the, through this time of trial and testing so that Peter's will, his I will, will be broken, and he would come over to the Lord's will. And the idea here is, is through your failure, Use that to strengthen your brethren because they're going to fail as well because they're imperfect people. But I died on the cross for imperfect people that the love of God, the magnitude of the glory of God would be revealed for all of humanity. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you're gracious and merciful. And Lord, we can look at Peter and we can laugh at Peter, make fun of Peter, look down on Peter, but we're no better ourselves. And so, Father, we just see the grace of God that has been lavished upon all of us. And, Father, I pray that that would cause a rejoicing to well up in our hearts. That, Father, even as we close out this service, that we would glorify you through the singing out of worship, that we would worship our God and that we would lift you up based upon, Lord, all that you have done. And so, Father, we just lift up tomorrow to you. And again, we just pray for your will to come about in this nation but, Lord, it doesn't matter who we insert into the White House because you are seated upon the throne, and that's truly where our trust is, and that's where our hope is. And so, Lord, we just thank you and praise you one more time that you'd be glorified in this place through our efforts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all, be, will you all stand, please? If you have asked for a donation letter, a letter for your offerings, there's a whole mess of them back at the information booth. If you still need one, if you still would want one, you can email me or you can sign a, your name on the list there. At this point, if you sign the list today, probably won't be there for a week for this weekend, but if you need something right away, you can let me know and I'll get it to you.
right away. Other than that, I will see you Sunday morning. God bless you guys.